Good morning, RP. Good to see you guys. A lot of new faces. I'm, I'm looking forward to connecting, hopefully, with some of you guys at the Coffee Connection here after service. We'll be meeting in the back corner over there. Um, if you would, you can open up your Bibles to the book of James. We'll continue our time in, in this sermon series we've been calling The Gospel on the Ground. James chapter 5. I, I realized something. Um, not very delightful about myself this last week as my dad was in town for a few days. Boy, does he take a lot of pictures of his grandkids. My dad didn't even know how to use his phone a couple years ago. Everything we did, everywhere we went, he documented the entire thing. I felt like I was on a reality TV show. Camera always out. Photos being taken, camera, uh, uh, videos always being rolling. So on one of the last days of the trip, I, I grabbed my dad's phone and I started scrolling through the pictures. Every picture I looked at, the first place my eyes went to was myself. My gorgeous wife, my two joyful daughters, my aging father, all in these pictures and my eyes go straight for me. I, I, I guess if, if my smile was just right or if I looked good, it was a, a good picture. I don't, don't want to ask for a show of hands, but I know some of us in here can probably relate. So much for me being a, a hater of the selfie Instagrammer generation. This, this obsession with self and unfortunately doesn't stop with family photo albums. This is even often how we read our Bibles. We put our me glasses on. What does this passage mean to me? What is God saying about me, my life, my future? Where am I in James's mind when he wrote this? Or, 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 or some of us have been a part of Bible studies where, where we go around in, in circles and we say, well, here's what this passage means to me. And that's awesome, Ron. Here's what I think the passage means to me. And that's very insightful, Tiffany. Here's, here's what I think the passage means to me. That can end pretty ugly. As, as, as the Bible will always mean what it has always meant. This is one of the reasons why I love, I love the heart behind one of our questions that we ask in our GCs. Where is God in this passage? Now, obviously, the Bible is for us, no doubt. But sometimes when we have the ability to get our eyes off of ourselves, are we actually able to see God in the text? This is my aim this morning in the book of James. If we simply look for ourselves in the book of James, like we do when we look at pictures, we could easily take James and turn him into another self-help book. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. Become a really good legalist and miss God in this entire book. For instance, in our passage this morning, we can white-knuckle James's command he's going to give us to be patient, all the while miss 
the faithful God through whom patience comes. Before we jump into our text, let let me ask you guys a question this morning to hopefully whet our appetite as to what lies ahead. And you can go ahead right now and keep those me glasses on because this will be a personal question. But, But is there a situation in your life right now, right now that you need patient perseverance for? Is there something going on in your world where you know God is calling you to persevere patiently? Is it a relationship, a sickness, a physical malfunction? Maybe it's just driving on I-25 with all these crazy Californians. (laughs) Or you're in a season of loss, grief, suffering. Maybe it's just your unsatisfying career, your annoying boss, your ungodly coworkers. Maybe you just thought by now in your life, things would look so different and they don't. I know for those of us with little kids, we sure can use some patience and perseverance. Amen. (laughs) Some sleep. (laughs) Maybe you're in here this morning and you're in a season of deep depression. Like you've had some suicidal thoughts come into your mind over the last few months, over the last few days. If if this is you, and I'm almost certain every one of us falls somewhere in this box where you know you need to persevere patiently in the season that God has you in, then you're going to want to lean in this morning. Because Jesus' brother, James, is going to show us about God. And he's going to show us something about God that is exactly what we need to persevere with patience. James is going to argue, and I pray convince us, from this passage that, that God's present and future faithfulness enable us to patiently persevere. So if you're not already there, James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We'll have two movements to our passage this morning. First, judgment for the oppressors. Judgment for the oppressors. oppressors. And second, the response of God's people. So first, judgment for the oppression, oppressors. Look with me at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's hold up. Let's pause there for a second. Come now, you rich. So James starts off our passage this morning. Now we live in Douglas County, the fifth richest county in this wealthy nation, not the fifth richest county in Colorado, but in the nation where the average household income is $120,000 a year. And keep in mind, if you make 20,000 a year, you're in the world's wealth bracket of the top 2% the world. Our town statue in Parker is the self-made man. 
comfort, ease, our careers, our kids' athletic careers, our oversized homes, beautiful cars, safe neighborhoods, and financial investments. These are the gods of Douglas County. A county where if a homeless person is spotted, cops are notified and your next door app and Facebook page is blowing up. My neighborhood, for instance, Stroh Ranch, when the HOA announced that there was going to be a Section 8 low-income housing apartment complex coming into the middle of the neighborhood, these people went crazy. They lost their minds. And some of you guys are thinking this morning, like, why did we have to come to church this Sunday? (laughs) But before you get up and leave... Here's an important question, because it will impact how this passage is preached. Did James have us, Douglas County, R.P. Parker, did James have us in mind when he wrote this? Maybe. Let's find out who he's actually writing to. Now, it's almost unanimous amongst James scholars that these first six verses, the first six verses in chapter five are not aimed at his audience. The the scattered churches outside of Jerusalem filled with Jewish Christians who left Jerusalem due to persecution. He's speaking to the rich, but he's not speaking to Christians. For the miseries coming upon you, Now, we know if you've been in this sermon series long enough, you know that James is intense, but he's never this intense with the church. Verse one, miseries coming upon you. Verse three, eat your flesh like fire. Verse five, day of slaughter. James is talking about final judgment, hell. Even when James does get intense with the people of God throughout this letter, because he's calling folks to costly discipleship, he'll still call them brothers and sisters. Or even when he does get loud and say things like, you adulterous people, you double-minded, or he calls them sinners, he's always calling them back to repentance. Because they are living lives that are out of step with the gospel and who they are in Christ. But not here. Before we answer this question, who then is he talking about? Let's first see what James is accusing them of. Look at verse two. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Verse three, your gold and silver have corroded. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts. Verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Yikes. (laughs) Hoarding wealth, extravagant lifestyle. That's what these people are guilty of. Verse four now helps us see who these people actually are. As James speaks here of their injustice toward the poor. Look at verse four. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is invoking judgment. 
with some of the strongest language we have in all of the New Testament against these rich, non-Christian landowners who many, some scholars say most in James's audience, worked for and whose cries have been heard. New Testament scholar out of Denver Seminary, Craig Blomberg, says this about who these people are. He says, quote, They are the financially wealthy in a world where the rich occupied a minuscule percentage of the population. James does not call them to change their behavior. Instead, he warns them of impending disaster in their lives by commanding them to mourn their coming fate. But what, what James is doing here is, is what the prophets often do in the Old Testament when they spoke for, uh, about coming judgment for the surrounding nations. Now, the prophets weren't speaking for the sake of the surrounding nations. It's actually a, a rhetorical discourse known as apostrophe, where, where James here can speak to people who are not present the rich, land-owning, unbelieving oppressors for the sake to encourage those who are present, these oppressed Christians scattered outside of Jerusalem. Sam Albury says, James's purpose here is to show his Christian readers on the receiving end of these rich oppressors' ungodliness what God thinks of it. He wants them to overhear what God would and will say to the rich who are giving them such a hard time. For these Christians who may feel envy toward the rich, hatred in their heart for how they've been treated, or whatever other emotions they may be experiencing, God God wants them to see that though it may seem like these people are living their best lives now, that is coming to an end very quickly. And nothing but torment, misery, slaughter await them. And we, likewise, in a world where being a Christian is only going to get harder and harder, must remember that we are longing, longing for another country, a better one. Even if persecution does come our way for being a follower of Jesus, and as the ungodly continue to prosper, James is saying, be encouraged, church. This is all they have. A day of reckoning is coming. This is who James is speaking about. But when I did ask the question, is he speaking to us? Are we on his mind when he wrote this? I said maybe on purpose because I think it could be easy to live in Douglas County, hear James addressing unbelievers, and just quickly move on to the next section without even a little self-examination. There's a reason Pastor John Piper says America is arguably the hardest place to live as a Christian. It's because our dangers here are pretty subtle. Some places you go public with your faith and you're dead. Not here. But there's a chance that we're dead and we don't even know it. 
to the church at Corinth, Paul called them to examine themselves, to see if they're in the faith. And I think that's not a bad idea for us when we come to a passage like this. James in these verses is describing the fate of those headed to hell. And how does he describe them? Hoarding wealth, extravagant lifestyle, comfort and ease, injustice toward the poor. I mean, is this not the air we breathe? James says, you have laid up treasure. So I guess, at least before we move on, we we should ask ourselves, what or where is your treasure? James is picking up the same verbiage from his brother. If you remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure because it is there that you will find your heart and though it's not the point of this passage i do think for us in douglas county these verses should cause us to examine our hearts new testament scholar Miriam kamel she says this these people probably viewed their wealth as a way to avoid pain and suffering living lives of ease and comfort. But James declares that their wealth will not save them at this time. And we know enough is never enough anyways, right? Fidelity, they did an interesting survey and they they went to people who had a million dollars in assets, assets not including any real estate or any type of retirement fund. So, 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 so take away all the equity in their homes, probably plural, all their 401ks and different retirement plans. And these guys are still millionaires. Now get this, 43% of them do not feel rich. Golly, right? Like we talked about in James four, God made us for himself and our hearts will remain restless Even as we try to fill the restlessness with more stuff, because ultimately our hearts are made only to find true rest in God. Where's your heart? And money is not evil. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what James is saying. But the love of it, the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil and not a characteristic of the follower of Christ. Okay, self-examination over. For James's readers, hearing this encouragement, this was an encouragement, verses one through six, hearing this encouragement to them about the coming judgment of their oppressors helps them to take a deep breath, realize that this life is not all they have. What they do have, as we're about to see, is here and yet is to come. Which leads us to our second and and final movement in this passage this morning. The response of God's people. Before we look 
at the right response James wants God's people to have toward oppression, adversity. Let's first look at the wrong responses. There's two of them and both have to do with the tongue. Shocker, James. Look down at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The first wrong response we see is grumbling. Remember what the old covenant people were known for in the wilderness? Grumbling, complaining. God was testing their patience and all they could do was complain about their situation, about their leadership. In seasons of suffering, it's easy, church, to to bite and devour one another. This is the temptation that comes with the pressures of a tough situation. I mean, how often do we take out the frustrations of a hard day on the people who are closest to us, the ones who love us most? James is calling us to refrain from this impulse, this impulse to either grumble to others about our struggles or blame others for our struggles. The the second wrong response, James points out, rash vows. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Their temptation under the oppression of these landowners would have been to make empty promises, say whatever they had to say to get whatever they needed in that moment. Giving an oath is not necessarily an evil thing. We see the Apostle Paul do it. I believe we can testify in court under oath. I think what James is after, what Jesus was after in the Sermon on the Mount, who said something very similar, is that the people of God say what we mean, that we're truth tellers. We shouldn't need to swear by God's name for people to take us seriously. As Christians, we're going to get an account for every idle word we speak. Everything that comes out of our mouth ought to be the truth and nothing but the truth. And this form of double-mindedness that James is talking about is is not being a, a people of their word can spill out into all sorts of other forms, right? Exaggerations, half-truths. Telling someone yes when you really know you're going to text them later and tell them no. Church, God is calling us in the midst of whatever season we find ourselves in to be people of our word. Okay, so that's the the wrong response to oppression. How does James want his listeners to rightly respond to oppression, to adversity? Karl Marx would say, start a revolution, rise up and overthrow those in power over you. Not James. James says something completely different. He, he, he doesn't call them to revolt against their oppressors. He doesn't call them to do everything they can possibly do to get the right man in office so they can make the outskirts of Jerusalem great again. Nope, he's going to call them and us to patiently persevere. 
And he wants to do this by getting their eyes and our eyes off of ourselves and on to God. On God's present and future faithfulness, which will enable patient perseverance. So look with me at verse 7. He starts by getting our eyes on God's future faithfulness. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, he's speaking to the church again. Now Christians throughout church history have affirmed the first and second coming of Christ. The first coming is, was what happened 2,000 years ago when, when Jesus walked the earth. Was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, fulfilling the law of God. Dying a death on a, on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate and rising from the dead after three days. Ascending to the right hand of God. The second coming, well, this is the day that that every Christian since has been longing for, like Romans tells us, even groaning for. This is the exclamation point on the gospel itself. The gospel, the the, the good news that the God-man Jesus is enthroned as king. The second coming is the day when King Jesus comes back to consummate his kingdom. Judge the living and the dead and usher in the new heavens and the new earth where God will dwell with his people forever in our redeemed bodies and on his redeemed earth. James is saying, I need y'all to respond with patience. How? Look ahead to a future day. He continues in verse 7, showing them that this patience is not passive, Verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Now, everyone knew about farming in James's day. The rains would come twice a year. The early rains would fall sometime October to November after the farmer had sown the crop. And the late rains would come in the spring or around March to April. The farmer would have to wait, wait with confidence that the rains were going to come and do their thing. The farmer had to be patient and yet couldn't be passive. There was work to be done, weeds to be pulled. But at the end of the day, the farmer could not make his crops show up any quicker. Patience, 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 and their lives depended on it. Like this farmer, James says, verse 8, you also be patient, establish your heart, or another translation, strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is like, if you missed it, let me say it again, be patient, be patient. This is how you respond to adversity, establish your heart. And how do we do that? Again, the second coming of Christ, James argues. Jesus is coming back and will make right every wrong. Justice will be fully served. The tears we're crying now will be no more. The pain we're experiencing now will be gone. And you will be reigning with your King Jesus forever. 
alongside your brothers and sisters with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The the future that awaits us is unlike anything we could possibly fathom. Some of us have a a, a vision of of the world to come where we're going to be floating somewhere in the clouds as a disembodied spirit playing Matt Redmond's 10,000 Reasons on our harps, chilling with our new angel friends that look like little white naked babies. Or maybe you have a view of heaven that's like a glorified version of Chick-fil-A in Castle Rock on a Friday night after VBS. So I get it that you'd rather hike 14ers drink beer with your friends and create memories with your family. But that's a bad interpretation of the world to come. British Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright says, says it like this. It's a longer quote, but I think a good one. Quote, I do not imagine for a minute that the coming age we shall arrive at A point where we, let me start that over. I do not imagine for a minute that in the coming age we shall arrive at a point where we shall have experienced everything the new world has to offer and will become bored as is imagined by some scornful contemporary visions of heaven. That is a gross character. Born of the bland talk about heaven that has characterized afterlife speculation in the Western world over the last century or two. In contrast, because I believe that the God we know in Jesus is the God of utterly generous, outflowing love, I believe that there will be no end to the new creation of this God. And that within the new age itself, there will always be more to hope for, more to work for, more to celebrate. And then, hear what he says next. Learning to hope in the present time is learning not just to hope for a better place than we currently find ourselves in, but learning to trust the God who is and will remain the God of the future. End quote. We need to get our eyes, church, on the future faithfulness of God. There's coming a day when there will be no more need for patience, perseverance, or even faith itself when we see him face to face. Until then, RP, whatever situation you find yourself in where you know God is calling you to patiently persevere, remind yourself that the coming of the Lord is at hand. But God is not just faithful in the future, in the second coming of Christ. His faithfulness is present now. And James wants to show us that as well. Look at verse 10 with me. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James is saying, God is saying, look to the prophets who patiently persevered during intense suffering on behalf of God. 
usually because they were calling out injustice. And remember their plight that God was with them, that God never left them, that God accomplished much in and through them. And then James wants to key in on one fella, Job. Now, some of us in here are are going through some stuff right now. There's one guy that has been there and back, and and it's Job. In a blink of an eye, his wealth, health, and children are all taken from him. I, I, I don't know anyone who has been through what Job went through. Even his wife tells him, Job, please just curse God and die already. If you know the book of Job, what transpires for the next 35 chapters is his faithfulness. Yes, his steadfastness, not not his perfection. If, If you read the book of Job, you'll wonder, doesn't Job grumble about his situation? Doesn't he proclaim his innocence with an attitude of self righteousness and even question God to his face? Yes, he does all of that. Let's be real with suffering. James is not saying, look to Job. Wasn't he so satisfied in God, smiley and silent as he waited patiently for God's hand to move? No, suffering is hard. Grief hits us in waves. Job was real. Job was not perfect, but Job was faithful. Job was faithful. And Job got to see the purposes of the Lord unfold. In this season of trial, God was doing something in Job's life. God's faithfulness was present the entire time. Did Job always know what God was up to? Do we always know what God is up to? No. But like our passage says, God's purposes in Job's life were being accomplished by the Lord who is compassionate and merciful. God's faithfulness is present now if we would just have eyes to see it. In other words, for the oppressed in the book of James and for whatever situation we find ourselves in where we need patient perseverance, there's more going on than what we can see. God is at work in our lives. And our God is not only faithful, but compassionate and merciful. God is doing something. You may not know why you're in the situation you're in. God is working. Be patient, friends. Paul says it like this, and we know for those who love God, all things, all things, RP, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's present and future faithfulness enable us to persevere with patience. So what's our application? Two things. First, let's get our minds on the future. The second coming on Christ, the world to come. When when John Calvin was pastoring in Geneva, 
during the time of the Reformation, he had an old lady who was a part of his parish and she was going through a difficult season. She had just lost her spouse. She was struggling. Calvin wrote her a letter and basically encouraged her to live your life with one foot raised. In other words, get your mind on the things you can't see with your eyes. That's our application. That, that we would find a way to leave here without letting the, the, the second coming of Christ and the world to come leave our minds. Like whatever you need to do, do it. So that when Thursday night rolls around and you're struggling to patiently persevere the, the, the situation God has you in, you would be able to establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Living with one foot raised like the author of Hebrews says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And second, put your grace glasses on. We talked earlier about how natural it is for us to be so focused on self. Whether we're looking at our, our, our situation, uh, pictures, the Bible, we like to put our me glasses on. But by putting our grace glasses on, I want us to survey God's grace and faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of one another. Like we talked about, sometimes it's hard to see what God is up to. But his faithfulness is present. He's compassionate and merciful and is doing a beautiful work right now in his people. Try to see the small signs of, of God's grace and praise him for what he's up to. The Bible describes the, the Christian life as a walk. As a walk. Now, if we look outside at the Cherry Creek Trail and we see people walking, there's nothing too spectacular about that. Like, we're not going to take the Lord's Supper and go outside and say, oh man, look at that guy's walk. Look at how he stays on the balls of his feet. Look at her arms, the way they move. Right? Like, like, there's nothing too special about walking. And sometimes the Christian life can feel rather ordinary. Friends, it, it's not ordinary. God is at work. Let's be a church that, that puts our grace glasses on and, and not only for ourselves, but for others. On, on the metaphor of walking for the Christian life, the late great biblical counselor David Powelson said, God is pleased with a shuffle. When we see one another's lives, a shuffle Maybe a limp, maybe a lean, maybe this person's just facing in the right direction. Let's celebrate the grace of God and his faithfulness in one another. He's working in our lives. You know how encouraging this can be? Let's be a church full of encouragers. Like, look at you, sis. I know what you're going through. You're going through some tough family stuff right now. I haven't heard you complain once. Man, the, 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 the mercy of God in your life. Thank you for showing us what it looks like to live out this Christian life. Or bro, 
that diagnosis you just got has, has, has only caused you to depend more on God. His compassion in your life is overwhelming. Thank you for showing us that God actually is enough. God is working among us, RP. Let's celebrate what he's doing in our lives for the glory of God and joy of all peoples. Amen. Let me pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your grace, for your faithfulness. God, thank you that we get to see you work in each other's life. Lord, help us to be a church that celebrates your faithfulness, that celebrates your work in our lives. God, help us to also be a church that has eyes to see a coming day, that we would live this life with one foot raised, that the day of the Lord is coming. God, I pray that we would be a people that can live our lives today with the joy of eternity on our hearts and minds. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.